My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of All the Hard Things. Here today, I'm super excited to have another Wisconsinite here with me. My gosh, I didn't even realize that. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about OCD today and how... You know, there's there can be lots of comorbidities, and we're gonna hear Brooke's story. She is a 36 year old RN. Um, she's a wife and mother of two. Had an OCD onset about eight years old, um, and we're just gonna go through kind of her experience through multiple levels of uh, different levels of care, um, through different comorbidities, and yeah, just super excited to hear about your story. Uh, thank you so much for being here and being vulnerable. Um, and I would love to hear too, you know, just the stigma that you kind of endured because of um, some of the things that you've had to go through today. So Brooke, thank you so much for being here. If you want to go ahead and just introduce yourself really quickly and yeah, just yeah, take absolutely. us maybe from like when you first realized that you had OCD or what that looked like for you. Sure. Um, so thank you for having me, Jenna. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here um, to talk about my story and help raise awareness and decrease stigmas around mental illness. Um, so as you mentioned, yes, I am 36 years old, a mother of two, married to my high school sweetheart. Um, I'm an RN by trade, primarily spent my years in the operating room, but have also dabbled in a few different mental health um, environments. So that's kind of my history on that. In regards to my mental illness, I uh, struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder, um, anorexia, bipolar 2 and panic disorder. Um, OCD and my eating disorder have been around longer than the other two. The other two are more recent in this past year. Um, so that's been interesting. Um, in regards to where my story started, I would say back when I was about eight years old is when, you know, hindsight is 2020 with this. Um, but that's when I first started recognizing symptoms. Um, the first couple symptoms that I can recall where I remember having to fold my dirty laundry before putting it in the hamper because I was afraid if I didn't do that, that something bad would happen to my mom, dad, or sister. Um, either they'd get very sick or die. Um, and then another thing that I did is I had a lot of decorative pillows on my bed when I was, you know, around that age. And at nighttime, instead of just kind of shuffling them off my bed and going to sleep, I would have to take each pillow one by one and place it in a certain pattern on the floor um, while I slept same sort of thought process. Um, if I didn't do that, I would experience um, something bad happening to my mom, dad, or my sister. Um, so that's kind of when it started. Um, unfortunately, I did not get appropriate treatment until I was about 26, 27 years old. 
Um, I had gone through three therapists. So the, the lucky number was number four. Um, and we can talk more about that too, um, as we move forward. And then, um, started treating my obsessive compulsive disorder, um, started experiencing back in 2016, um, some new intrusive thoughts that were, um, very difficult for me to digest. Um, and very much, I had a strong kind of thought action fusion at that point in time. So associated that these thoughts I was having that I actually committed these acts, uh, which was very distressing. Um, I thought I wasn't deserving anymore of anything good. So I started starving myself and um, used extreme exercise and quickly developed anorexia. Um, I got myself pretty sick. Um, I was having heart palpitations. Um, my electrolyte um, were very off. Um, so I ended up going into a partial hospitalization program for about seven to eight weeks um, to kind of restabilize in the sense of relearning how to eat, um, working on fear foods, et cetera. Um, and then came out of that, continued my treatment with uh, my obsessive compulsive disorder. And then um, at the beginning of this year, had what they considered a manic episode uh, that brought me inpatient for a handful of days so that they could restabilize medications. Um, and then very recently in the past probably month, month and a half, um, I've started experiencing um, significant panic episodes. They were occurring about every five to six days, or I mean, I'm sorry, occurring five to six days a week. Um, intensity on a scale of zero to seven was probably a five or a six, um, lasting anywhere from 20 to 40, 45 minutes. Um, and we're really starting to impede um, on my day-to-day -day living and activities. So working on a newer treatment plan um, that was developed by my treatment team. Um, and that, that's kind of where I am right now. Wow. Yeah. So as I said, before we jumped on, you've been through the freaking ringer. Um, and this is something that even though it happens and it's actually more so the norm than just straightforward OCD, OCD often does come with these, these buddies, these unwelcome party guests, these comorbidities. And you're mentioning some comorbid conditions. You know, we, we talked about the eating disorder. We talked about bipolar and now we're, you know, talking about panic. I would love for you to go into like how those all kind of interplay together. Like I'm constantly getting questions about like, can OCD be impacted by or be influenced by bipolar? Like, can you have, you know, OCD and an eating disorder? And it's like, yes, you can. And this is kind of what it looks like. So if you could like talk about how OCD kind of interplays with the bipolar, how OCD interplays with the panic and how OCD interplays with the eating disorder, specifically the eating disorder, because even though those are typically thought of as being like very, very, very separate conditions, they're often very comorbid. And I actually, my master's thesis was on how they're not actually all that different. Um, even though obviously we have the obsession about like the weight loss and the like, you know, the body and, 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 you know, losing weight and all of that, um, the concept of like obsessions and compensatory behaviors as like compulsions or rituals and OCD, they serve a lot of the same function. So 
I know I just told you a, a bunch of stuff that I want you to talk about, but yeah, if you could speak to like what these all look like as far as comorbidities go, like on a day-to-day basis, what that looks like for you. And then specifically like the OCD and the eating disorder. Definitely. Um, so the eating disorder, uh, for me was brought on by my obsessive compulsive disorder. That was, was very obvious. So what had happened is, um, historically I had dealt with a lot of perfectionism, OCD, um, contamination, OCD, um, harm, OCD, things like that. And that was kind of my baseline. I was used to dealing with those things. And those were the things that we were tackling in treatment. Um, at the beginning of 2016, I all of a sudden out of nowhere, um, started having relationship OCD, um, intrusive thoughts and how that, what that looked like for me was I started having intrusive thoughts and images of wanting to be with other people, both emotionally and physically, um, that were close to me. So it started off as being colleagues that I worked with, and then it moved on, um, to best friends. And then it ultimately moved on to my therapist who I've been with um, for nine-ish years. Um, These thoughts were extremely distressing to me. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, I have that really strong thought action fusion. So to me, having these thoughts of wanting to be with other people automatically made me a cheater. I believe that I had cheated on my husband who I've been married to for 13 years. and very happily married and would never want anything um, detrimental to happen to our relationship. So these thoughts are really distressing. And um, they caused me to pretty much hate myself, feel very disgusted with myself. Um, And at that point, I started to just feel like not deserving of anything good. I only deserve to be punished. Um, And so I started off by just jumping feet first in, and I um, pretty much restricted my caloric intake to under 600 calories a day. Um, I started running, which running is not a sport that I have had ever previously taken up. Um, but I started running like four ish miles every night. Um, and then it started creeping into different areas of my life. I started noticing that like during my breaks or lunch breaks at work, um, instead of eating, I would find like a private space and I would exercise. I would do sit-ups and um, jumping jacks and whatnot. Um, when I would read to my kids at nighttime, I would sit there while reading the book to them and I would do leg lifts. I put myself in this constant state of motion, um, to continue to just decrease weight and not for the reason of, you know, weighing less or looking a certain way, but purely for the reason of this was my punishment for having those intrusive thoughts and images that I was having. Um, So as I mentioned before, got pretty sick, had to go into treatment for that. That was interesting because I completely agree with you that I I felt that they were looked at as two separate things. And for me, they were very much comorbid. Like they very much worked off one another. Um, So thankfully um, at the treatment center, they were able to connect me with a few therapists that were familiar with this. And we were able to use exposure response prevention for both you know, the eating disorder component, but also the OCD kind of at the same time. Um, and that was very helpful. So I've had, I'm, I'm doing very well to date with my eating disorder. I'm considered to be in recovery. Um, it's taken me years to get here. Um, you know, I had a lot of ups and downs between then and now, um, but I've learned what I need to do to stay on track. And I also have 
finally, it took me a really long time, but I finally have come to terms with just how unhealthy I was at that point um, and how I really put myself into um, a situation where I wasn't safe and I could have been really hurt if I continued to go down the same path that I was going down. Um, so that's the eating disorder in regards to the bipolar. So when I had this episode, um, at the beginning of this year, 2022, it started off by, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and stress, um, because I was actively working on exposure response prevention with, with these, um, relationship OCD thoughts. Um, so it, you know, it kind of, it was my day to day. I was constantly doing exposures around them and these exposures were very distressing for me. Um, and I got to a point where I started once again, down that road of needing to punish myself for the thoughts that I was having. And at that point I knew I couldn't use my eating disorder because everyone had all eyes on me. And if there, you know, if there was any movement in that direction of losing weight or somebody noticing that I wasn't eating something, it was going to be brought to my attention pretty quickly. So I started self-harming by cutting myself, um, which also was a new behavior that was developed. Um, and I got myself into a situation where it was a Friday and I was feeling just so, I just needed a second to breathe. Felt like I couldn't breathe. And I do have um, Alprazolam or Xanax prescribed PRN um, that I used primarily for flying because um, I feel like I have no control when I'm flying. And so um, that is a struggle for me. But um, I decided that if I took a little bit of the Alprazolam, like every hour or every two hours, that I could maybe potentially kind of like stabilize my day and allow myself opportunity to have a clear mind and to breathe. Um, unfortunately, that's not what happened. The benzodiazepine kind of built up into my system. And in about the middle of the day, I started cutting myself and I started hearing voices um, that were telling me to just cut myself over and over and over and over and over again. Um, so I left my house and I went for a walk and I called my therapist and said, I think that I'm in real trouble. I'm hearing these voices. I don't know what's going on. I don't feel safe. I'm not comfortable going back to my house. Um, and so he stayed on the phone with me. Um, by the time I had kind of circled the block and came back to my house, my husband had pulled into the driveway. And so my therapist was really amazing. Um, he kind of went with me as I went and told my husband what was going on. And I called the local behavioral health center and, um, was admitted to an inpatient program for a few days. Um, they restabilized my meds. And when I was discharged, um, I was put on a mood stabilizer medication, which was new to me. I was very hesitant to take it, um, but I wanted to ensure I was doing everything I could to not experience what I had experienced ever again, um, because it was really scary. It was the first time, you know, in my life that I felt like I really was not in control. Um and so that was the bipolar component. I am super thankful. I feel like the medication has done wonders um, to stabilize my mood, um, which is great. And then the panic, then we come to the panic disorder, which just came up in the past couple months. Um, and for me, how that was displaying is I got very, um, and this coincides with my obsessive compulsive disorder. I got very focused on body sensations and so if at any point in time, I noticed any sort of body sensation that was not quote unquote normal. So such as like 
a quick flutter in my chest or a tightness in a muscle that I wasn't using or a tinge of dizziness or headache. Um, I immediately would think something significantly or something significant was wrong, such as I had a brain tumor or I was going to pass out and never wake up again. And so I would continue to focus on these sensations. And as you can imagine, when you do that, your body starts to work itself up. So then these sensations become even more um, present and palpable. Um, and so then I would get myself into um, the state of having a panic attack. I would be you know, short of breath, um, actually dizzy, um, rapid heartbeat. And um, I would have to work myself through that both with medication as well as a lot of diaphragmatic breathing. Um, so I informed my treatment team that this is what I was experiencing. And we started, um, interoceptive exposures, which have been very helpful. Um, I've gotten to a point now where my panic episodes are probably like two or three times a week. And the intensity is probably more around like a four or five. Um, so it's become at least slightly more manageable. Um, and I'm assuming as we continue to work up this hierarchy for, um, the, panic symptoms, it will get better. So that's kind of how all four of them work together. Um, they're definitely connected, <laughs> but that's what my day-to-day -day looks like. Yeah. That was actually going to be my like immediate question, which was like, how do you think they're connected? Like if you could boil it down to like some of the similarities and like the core features, right? Like when you were talking about the eating disorder, you know, like one of the features there is probably just this, like the compulsion, right? Like this sense of urgency to do these things, like that mm -hmm. you have to be, you know, doing jumping jacks, you know, you have to be doing these compulsions to put your pillows in uh, these patterns or else so on and so forth, right? Like, or else you will gain weight or else something bad will happen to your family. Um, so yeah, like, what would you say are some of the, like, if we could put these on like a Venn diagram, what would you say would like, would be the very, very center? So I think the very center, I mean, I, I think the root has always been my obsessive compulsive disorder, but I think the very center of all four of them for me is control. So it comes down to the fact of, you know, my obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm always fighting for control by doing the, you know, the certain compulsions, um, that I feel like I need to do, et cetera. Um, eating disorder, same thing, constantly looking for control. I was looking for a way to punish myself so that I can control the feelings that I was experiencing. Um, you know, in regards to panic, it's the fear of losing control, right? Fear of, um, I'm not going to be able to calm myself down. I am going to pass out and never wake up again. Um, you know, I'm going to go into cardiac arrest because I am losing control of my body. Um, and in regards to bipolar, it's the same, it's similar in the sense that it's losing control of my mood or in that moment, it felt like my brain, like experiencing a time, that's the only time that's ever happened in my life. And to be at the age that I am and have the experience I've had with treatment um, to date, to experience that, you know, handful of hours where I was hearing voices that was one of the scariest things I've ever experienced because it was literally the first time in my life where even though, you know, I like to say I'm in control and when my OCD is really in control, but that was the first time in my life where I honestly felt like I had zero control. I was not confident that I could come home and keep myself safe. I was not confident that I could stop the behavior um, that I was doing. 
And so I feel like for me, that's kind of like the center of it all is this control piece. Yeah, it definitely seems that way just from like my own experience. Like I know that so many of whatever other difficulties I've had in my life and you know what it is that you're talking about, it seems like control, right? Like wanting to know how things are going to be, wanting to be sure, you know, Mm -hmm. how you're going to be able to handle something that you are going to be able to handle it. Just like wanting to know with 100% certainty, very rigid, right? Like, and I I don't say this just about you. Like I say this about myself too, as someone who has Mm -hmm. OCD and as, you know, someone who works so often with people who have OCD, right? It's just like this need for control and like, it's unrelenting. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. You're talking about like these, you started to hear voices and like, it's very clear from your story that like, there was clearly a turn, like where things got more sinister. Um, and I have never been diagnosed with anything other than, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, major depression when I was going through postpartum OCD and whatnot. But, um, like, I think sometimes, yeah, like when these things are left unaddressed, And when they snowball, I think that eventually, like it just gets worse, right? Like it just gets worse. It has potential to just become very, very sinister. Like my, the, the thought that made me want to get treatment where I was like, shit, like this cannot happen. Like, this is scary. This is the scariest part of it all. I remember I was sitting down, you know, with my family and everything was fine. Um, but I looked over at my son, he was just a baby. He was just like a year old at that point. And I had this thought that, you know, maybe he was sent to me by the devil and Mm -hmm. it was starting to get to the point where I was like, you know, I could almost get on board with that. Like that I could all like, that wasn't even like very truly ego dystonic at that point. It was almost like kind of borderline in hindsight, like uh, low insight or even like maybe like it, it could have very clearly gone delusional. Like it could have very easily had I not like hunkered down and called the people that I needed to call. Like I could totally see how left untreated that could have very well turned into a very, very ugly, scary, just like sinister is the word that comes to mind place. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you're, you mentioned so many things that I want to talk about. I, I took a bunch of notes here, but specifically thought action fusion. So, mm-hmm. you know, it seemed like that was a, a core concept throughout a lot of the things that you struggled with, right? Like if I have that thought, that's the emotional equivalent of having done that. Um, you know, like even back to when you were little all the way to when you started to struggle with relationship OCD, right? So, um, some people might not be as familiar with thought action fusion. So can you talk to that a little bit more and maybe give some more examples on that? And then I'd be curious to see, we'll get to treatment eventually, but um, yeah, yeah, I'd be really curious to hear like your own interpretation of thought action fusion and maybe some other ways it impacted you. Yeah, sure. Um, So for me, thought action fusion is the idea that when you have a thought and it's just a thought that it feels like you've completed that behavior or that act. So for example, the time that it affected me the most, what were these thoughts of relationship OCD? So I might have um, an intrusive image of having relations with a colleague of mine that I am not physically interested in whatsoever, uh, but I may have these, these images And I immediately feel and associate that to the idea that 
I cheated on my husband. I'm a terrible person. Who would ever do that? Why would I ruin this amazing relationship that I have with such a supportive, significant other? Um, so for me, that's what thought action fusion looks like. Um, and I feel like when it came to my relationship OCD, it was so strong and still to this day, um, you know, we work on, I'm still working on that idea on trying to break that connection in my brain, um, and trying to reframe that. Um, but that's what it looked like for me and how I experienced it. Yeah, that's so important. I think so many people, they, for the longest time, like they just think that that's true. Like they don't, when they hear that that's a term and that that's not the case, that like having a thought is not the moral or emotional equivalent as like actually doing that thing. It's like, whoa, that's mind boggling to people. Um, I, I also think that something that people don't realize is that there are multiple levels of care. Uh, I know so many people think that it's kind of like one or the other. It's either like you're at an outpatient level where you're seeing a therapist one or two times a week, or you're like hospitalized, right? Which is what we would refer to as inpatient. There's so many other levels in between, you know, and and each one is going to be dependent on, you know, a lot of different things really, but really your symptom severity. So there's outpatient, which is one or two times a week. Usually could be more spaced out as you continue to progress and recover, There's also intensive outpatient, which is, I kind of call it like a part-time job. Um, You may go in person and maybe virtual, but it's kind of like 20-ish hours a week um, where you go for like a half the day maybe throughout the week and then you come home. Um, Where I used to work, it was like three or four hours a day. The next level of intensity up from there is partial hospitalization um, or a partial hospitalization program, PHP which I call like a full-time job. You kind of go for like most of the day, then you come home, you have the weekends to yourself. And then in between partial and inpatient is residential. Residential, a lot of people don't often think about, um, but residential is where you would literally like pack your bags, move potentially outside of the state, um, and you would go to live somewhere for an extended period of time. Where I was, it was 45 to 60 days, could be different for everybody. But the idea is that you're getting 24-7 care. You sleep there, you eat there, you may be able to have visitors and go for off, you know, off-site, but you sleep there, you you spend your weekends there. And then there's inpatient, which is where you are at an imminent risk of harming yourself or somebody else. You are needing, you know, 24-7 support and care and intervention to essentially just keep you safe and keep you with us on this earth. Um, But I wanted to reiterate that it's not necessarily one or the other. You know, there are lots of different options out there for people. Would love for you to give me your experiences at these different levels of care and just like... I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of curious, like how the heck you continue to like show up for yourself and like how you had the emotional stamina to keep showing up for treatment and recovery, because that seems like so much. Yeah. So of everything you've listed, I've had experience, I've had personal experience in all of them except one. Um, and that one is residential. However, um, I was a mental health nurse for a period of time where I was the nurse on a residential unit for adolescents who were experiencing um, OCD, anxiety, and depression. Um, so what that looked like for me, the majority of my time in these past nine years has been spent in outpatient. And that kind of varies. I mean, there have been periods of time where I have been in my outpatient therapist's office twice a week maybe even three times a week. 
um, down to once every, you know, four to six weeks, just depending on where I'm at, what I'm working on. Um, uh, my outpatient treatment team consists of a therapist, a psychiatrist, and a dietitian. Um, the dietitian is imperative to help me manage uh, my eating disorder to make sure I'm not slipping or sliding backwards at any point in time. Um, and I'm very thankful for the three of them. Um, I have so much respect for the, them and their knowledge um, and just what they've been able to help me with. Um, so that's where I've spent the majority of my time. I did partial hospitalization, which was five days a week, full-time job um, for seven or eight weeks. And that was when I got really sick with my eating disorder. And that was at a point in time where the, ideally they wanted me to go to inpatient, um, but I would not give up the ability to be able to be home with my kids every night. Um, so we settled on partial and it did the job stabilized me. I did weight checks every day. They helped me get back to a normal eating plan. Um, so that was very helpful. And then discharged from there to an intensive outpatient program, which was like three days a week for four-ish hours, I want to say. Um, I did that for a couple weeks. They wanted me to stay longer, but I had all the confidence in my outpatient team uh, that they could manage me at that point. Um, I'm a big advocate for myself and I know kind of when, I, when my head is in the right place, I know what I need and when, um, to be able to move in a positive direction. So at that point I decided that the intensive outpatient program wasn't going to be as beneficial to me as being able to get back to my outpatient team. So moved back to outpatient. Um, and then I had the experience early this year of inpatient, and that really, truly was an opportunity to keep me safe. Um, it was determined by myself, my therapist, my husband, that I was not going to be able to keep myself safe at home. Um, so I needed to be put into a situation where my surroundings were made safe for me until we were able to have the conversations we needed, restabilize on medications, um, et cetera. So I've kind of had a dabbling um, in all of it. Yeah. I, and again, like, how do you think you have the stamina to just like keep doing it? I don't know. I guess I work with so many people and I get so many DMs from people who are just like absolutely hopeless. Like, and I'm sure you were definitely there, like in and out at certain points, but like you had to have had to maintain some level of hopefulness to keep going to these places, right? Like, what was that like for you? And how did you keep hanging on? Um, so I have to say there was a long time where I couldn't do it for myself. Myself wasn't enough. Um, so I had to figure out something else that it was going, that I was going to work for. And it was a hundred percent my kids. Um, I got it into my head that no matter how sick I felt and no matter how miserable I felt that I had to try and do as much as I possibly could to get in a better and healthier spot for my children. Um, I didn't think it was fair to leave them, um, you know, if that was by my choosing or not. Um, and so that is what I did. I dragged myself into partial, um, into IOP, um, still to this day to treatment um, for my children. I thankfully now have gotten to a point where I'm doing it for myself which is what my treatment team has wanted to see for a long time. But in those days when times were really hard um, and I was really struggling, I had to just grab onto whatever I could. And it was my two kids. Um, you know, I'd come home 
every night from partial hospitalization after having a very long day of eating things I didn't want to eat, feeling very uncomfortable, anxious, stressed, et cetera. Um, and they were toddlers at that time. Um, they were small. So I'd come home and, you know, they would just toddle over to me and have these big, bright smiles. And um, I knew that I had to do it for them. So that's what I did at that point until I got healthy enough to realize that I not only have to do it for my family, but I have to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure with that had to come some level of like self-compassion. Um, and I, I know that that had to be, have been something that you learned because you're mentioning so many times throughout the process, right? Like you wanted to punish yourself, yeah. you know, that was a lot of what you talked about with the eating disorder. That was a lot about what you talked about with like eventually cutting yourself and hurting yourself was like this punishment that you didn't deserve to feel good, that you deserved to feel bad. So what what do you think was the change? I I mean, it's probably something that happened like very insidiously and like very much over time, but like, what was that process like going from like thinking that you truly, truly believed nothing good and that you in fact deserved to hurt yourself. And now you're kind of, you know, you eventually got to this point where like you had to do it for yourself. Um, You know, how did you learn about that self-compassion? How did you practice it? What was that process like? Yeah. So a lot of that was driven by my treatment team in the beginning, just because I struggled so significantly with that. I mean, they could tell me all day, you know, you are deserving, you know, they could throw the reassurance my direction and it just didn't matter. My brain just wasn't picking it up. Um, so in the beginning it involved a lot of like thought, uh, restructuring, um, and rewording. Um, it involved, you know, exposures of having to say so many positive things about myself every day. Um, and that's kind of where it started. And then a lot of this, you know, going back to my eating disorder. So when I got really sick, um, and for those of you that are familiar with eating disorders, I'm sure you're well aware of this, but you get to the point where you deprive your body of so many nutrients and calories that your brain can actually shrink. Um, and you start to struggle with things that you wouldn't struggle with before. So in my experience, um, I wasn't able to read books anymore because I couldn't focus. I wasn't able to hold conversation with my husband or friends because I couldn't focus. Um, my mind was so bogged down with thoughts about just food and exercise because I was depriving myself of those things. Um, shoot, we're going to need an edit. (laughs) (laughs) That happens though. That happens though. Like I've worked with so many people who are talking like who have experienced OCD and eating disorders. And it's like, of course it makes sense that you're not able to have that focus. Of course it makes sense. Like someone just asked me the other day, like, is it normal for when we have OCD to have like a brain fog? I'm like, absolutely. Like you have this like live replay of all the things that you've done wrong, all the things that are threatening going on around your environment you're mentally doing these compulsions. You're thinking about all of the catastrophes that could happen. Like you're, when you're dedicating mental resources to those things, you're not able to dedicate mental resources to the moment and what's actually going on around you. But then you bring up like the eating disorder piece and it's like, yeah, like eventually like you need kind of, you need gas in the car. Like you need gas in the car to be able to run and doing this exposure work and doing this recovery work, whether it's for OCD, eating disorders or whatever, you know, it, it requires mental work. It requires effort. You need to be paying attention. You kind of need to, you know, have some basic level and foundational ability to be able to practice things like mindfulness and, you know, remembering the things that you've taught been, been taught. And it's like, it, it is extremely difficult when someone gets to the point where they are cognitively kind of impaired. Yeah. You know, it's really, really difficult. 
Absolutely. So I'm curious what life looks like for you now. You know, I know that you mentioned just a couple of weeks ago that panic started to rear its head. I love that you're working on interoceptives and all of that stuff. Um, for those of you who are out there, interoceptives are essentially body exposures. Uh, they work via the same principles as other exposures, except these interoceptives are more about how your body feels, getting you to habituate and essentially learn that you don't need to freak out over these sensations, that they can be uncomfortable without you having to attach all this additional meaning to them, that you can handle being short of breath, for instance, um, and that it doesn't have to necessarily be this big catastrophic thing that you can't handle. Um, so I love that you mentioned that and that you're saying that that's been super helpful in your treatment so far. I'm curious, like what, you know, life looks like for you now. I get so many people who ask about like, you know, what, what does recovery look like? Like, what can I expect recovery to look like? You know, a lot of times I work with people who have this misinterpretation that, you know, by doing ERP or by doing recovery, I will be able to get rid of my intrusive thoughts or I will be, I will feel 100% better. And it's just like not true at all. That's not the goal. Um, so what does recovery mean to you? What does it look like for you? Yeah. So that is something that I struggled with significantly. Um, I have spent years looking for the cure, looking for the pill, looking for the, something I can check off that I did. That's going to make it all better and make it all go away. Um, I want to say just very recently, I have finally come to terms with the idea that that is not how it works and that's not what it's going to look like. Um, and I think just having that realization has kind of changed where I'm at in my recovery and has really kind of, you know, thrown me forward into it. Um, I understand that this is something that I'm always going to experience. I'm always going to have intrusive thoughts. Um, you know, or images. And the idea is knowing what to do with them and applying it right away, right? Acknowledging those thoughts as just thoughts, not allowing my brain to, you know, change that into the idea that they're actions and I've already committed them. Um, so it's, I mean, it's daily, it's daily work. Every single day I'm challenged um, with all four of the illnesses that I face. Um, you know, I struggle with eating every day. Every day is a challenge. I have to throw myself into um, something I experienced for a long time was orthorexia, this obsession with eating all natural and organic foods, because I was afraid that if I didn't, if I ate something that um, was not natural or organic, that I would immediately get cancer. And so would my family. Um, so, you know, there are days recently, Halloween, that was a perfect opportunity for me. I'm not really a candy eater. But candy is definitely not natural or organic. So I would took a piece of candy out of my kid's bin and ate it just to continue to kind of challenge those thoughts that I experience every day. Um, you know, I'm working on formalized exposures with, with my therapist, specifically about the relationship OCD regarding him, um, as well as these interoceptive exposures. Um, I'm at the point now where one of the interoceptives I'm working on is the um, stair stepping. So stepping really fast up and down, up and down for 60 seconds, um, which to me creates a sensation of um, dizziness, a little bit of lightheadedness, um, you know, increased respiratory rate, heart rate, et cetera. Um, my anxiety level with that is now falling somewhere around like a two or three. So we're ready to move on to the 
an, another exposure, which those are going to be a little bit more difficult for me. Um, some of the ones coming up are breathing through a straw, um, spinning around in a chair. I really struggle with dizziness because I'm afraid I'm going to faint. Um, so these are planned to do in office um, with the support of my therapist right there. Um, so that is what's coming up on the agenda for this upcoming week. Sounds um, so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, every day I have, you know, I have a list of um, expected exposures, um, certain tasks that my treatment team expects me to fulfill, um, kind of keeps me on task with the treatment plan moving forward so that I don't plateau. And then I also have to work on that, you know, um, response prevention part. You know, if I start feeling myself kind of heading down towards something that, you know, used to be bothersome for me, for example, I used to not be able to do the laundry because I couldn't touch lint because I thought lint was toxic, you know? So if I start to notice, oh, am I starting to avoid the laundry a little bit? I throw myself back into it and I do it before it gets so bad that I can't do it on my own. Yeah. It, it, it requires you to be mindful. Like you oh, really yeah, have absolutely. to pay attention. You really have to be looking at life and looking at what you do through the lens of someone who's in recovery, right? Like you can't just like live your life kind of all willy nilly. Like you really truly have to be on it. Like I, I, the example that I give, um, I've always been very obsessed with death, um, and like very distressed about it, like trying to prevent everybody around me from dying. Like mm-hmm. my dog, my son, my mom, like I, when I was three, when I was uh, younger, the earliest like sign that I can remember that I had OCD was I did everything in threes because I was just in love. I loved the band Hanson and there are three Hanson brothers in the band. And I always thought that like, unless I did everything in three, like one for each of the brothers, if I didn't, then that brother would die. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I always had this thing with my son. He's four and a half now, but I always had this thing as, as a lot of moms do, um, you know, obviously like checking to make sure that they're breathing, checking to make sure, mm-hmm. but I had something where I always had to like act as though like it could be your last day, like taking that like cliche statement to like the nth degree, like living literally every moment with him as though it was my last Um, Mm -hmm. like I had to be facing him. I had to be like looking at him at all times. I had to be like engaging all of my senses when I was around him. And when we would sleep together, I like, he would snuggle in my bed and I couldn't let myself sleep opposite of him. Like I had to sleep facing him so that Mm -hmm. I could like get all of him. Like I could just like truly like live as though it was my last time sleeping with him. Um, it was very compulsive. Like I had to be facing him at all times. I eventually worked through that, like exposure and response prevention, like intentionally, like sleeping the opposite direction, so on and so forth. But then a couple months later, I remember my dog, he's 10. He eventually came up and he's a big snuggler too. He was sleeping next to me. And I had that same thought of like, you know, it could be your last night sleeping with ASIC. It could be, you know, one of the last times that you get to sleep with him, you better sleep so that you're facing him so that you can get all of him before he dies. And this was like two o'clock in the morning that I had that thought. And I was like, oh, that's sneaky. That's sneaky. Mm -hmm. And like, even at two o'clock in the morning with like that brain fog and like you're sleepy and you're not with it. Even at two o'clock in the morning, I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. I'm not falling for that. And mm-hmm. it takes a lot. Like, what do you think it takes? What do you think that is? 
So first of all, I just want to say I can so relate <laughs> to pretty much everything you were talking about. Um, my kiddos, my daughter just turned eight and my son is turning 10, um, in the coming month. And I actually just within this last year, year and a half worked on not checking on them if they were breathing at nighttime. So that's a, that is a behavior that I had been doing for almost eight and, or almost 10 years, uh, for my eldest. So it started off by like, you know, only being able to check on them for so long and then kind of decreasing that time and then a quick glance and then no glances. And I thankfully have gotten to the point where I don't have to check on them at nighttime anymore. Um, but I totally can relate to that. And in regards to feeling like you're living the last um, moment with them, totally agree. I've experienced that as well. Um, something that I still actually struggle with today. And this is a behavior that I've been doing since I can remember, honestly, I remember doing it when I was eight is at nighttime. I always say, I love you. See you in the morning mm -hmm. because my brain is convinced if I don't say, see you in the morning, then I won't. Right. And so still to this day, like if we sleep, you know, at my parents' house for a holiday or whatnot, I will still say it to everybody. Um, it's something I'm working on, but it's, it's crazy how ingrained those behaviors can become. And then the more ingrained they are, the scarier they are to let go. Um, one other thing I thought about too, when you were talking about your experiences is, and I don't know if you have experienced this, but I find it so fascinating now how, because I can be completely logical in regards to my OCD but then not be able to do the physical behavior because it's still so challenging and distressing. Oh, for sure. So I, find, I find it so fascinating when listening to other people with obsessive compulsive disorder, talk about the things that they struggle with. If they are things that I have not struggled with, right. Because they seem so foreign to me. And so I'm able to apply my logical, you know, thought pattern to that behavior that they're expressing. So for example, when you were talking about, you know, feeling that your son was sent to you by the devil. That's not anything that I've ever struggled with. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to apply my logical, you know, thought process to say, oh, well, you know, X, Y, and Z. And for that not to be fearful for me, but then how I can't, even as, you know, an, a registered nurse who has worked in mental health and is very well aware of this process, I cannot apply that same logic to my own struggles. Right. With my well, and, and this is one of my favorite topics. OCD will never respond to logic because OCD lives in our imagination. It's often in an imagined thing that hasn't happened yet. Right. So, you know, our, when we try to use logic, something that makes sense in the everyday world, right. Our imagination is always going to trump that. And mm -hmm. I, I, I like when someone finally described that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. Like, that's why when I try to use logic or when other people, you know, that's why it has never worked with OCD. It might work for like a hot second. It might work for like a minute or a couple of days or even a couple, you know, weeks or whatever, but there's always going to be one more, but what if, because yeah. oftentimes these things that exist in our imagination, they haven't happened yet. They're not based in reality. They're not based in the here and now. And so of course our imagination is so much more vast than anything that could exist in the real world. Mm -hmm. My therapist challenges me still to this day frequently. Um, you know, I'll make a comment and he'll say, okay, re-explain that to me without using the word feel. Right. And I look right at so, it. Like, if we could just like eliminate the feeling problem, right? right. Like, 
we would solve a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so challenging. You literally can't. Yeah. Like, you know, I can't. So yeah. That's a good oh. tactic. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we wrap up here, I know, oh my gosh, I could talk to you forever. There's just so much that we could get into. I so appreciate your time and your vulnerability. Um, what have been some of the like key takeaways uh, from your experience? I know that's probably a loaded question, but um, what have been some key takeaways from your experience with OCD recovery and just, you know, you know, recovery in general? Yeah. So a couple, um, one thing that I want to get out there is I still believe that finding treatment, the appropriate treatment is very difficult. Um, so as a patient, it's unfortunate because I don't see, you know, physical health and mental health being treated the same. I think it's getting better, but I still think there's a lot of room for growth. Um, but you really have to be an advocate for yourself. So I went through, um, three therapists before finding my current therapist that I've been with for about nine years, um, all of whom told me that they could treat me, but none of them were versed in exposure response prevention um, or really CBT. The first three, I spent time sitting on the couch doing pretty much talk therapy, which in the moment, it felt great, right? You can kind of, you know, unwrap what you've been dealing with for the past week and it'll make you feel better when you're talking about it, but it was never getting at the core of the obsessive compulsive disorder. And so it just kept growing um, and it just kept seeding itself more, uh, making it more difficult for me to work on, you know, when I finally got into appropriate treatment. So I think that's one big, big takeaway for me is be an advocate for yourself. Um, you know, use the positive resources that are out there um, you know, there's no, uh, no CD, there's, um, the international OCD foundation, all of which are able to provide, um, good, well-recommended resources for you. Um, and I know, I think it's on the IOCDF website. Um, I can't remember, but there is a document that, um, kind of had a list of questions that you can interview your therapist to ensure that they're going to be the right fit for you. And that they do in fact, know and are trained on how to appropriately treat OCD with evidence-based practices. Um, so be an advocate for yourself. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Um, so that's one thing I've learned. Another thing I've learned and I'm still learning and I wish, um, you know, I would tell my younger self this is be kind to yourself. Um, it's so easy to get wrapped up into this blame game of just blaming yourself for these things that are happening. But the reality is, is you didn't choose this. I didn't choose this. Um, you know, this was a, a defect in my brain when I was made. And so it's a challenge, but it's treatable. Um, it takes hard work and commitment, but it's doable. And you can definitely get to a point in your life um, where you're able to enjoy your day-to-day -day activities, um, you know, and be present in those moments and have it be more manageable. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, they've done research to show, and I love this speaks to your point that, you know, you didn't choose this. Nobody with OCD chose this. They've done research to show that, you know, someone who has OCD, their brain does not look the same as someone who does not have OCD. That's very suggestive that, you know, certain areas of our brain are more responsive or less responsive than other people's brains when they don't have OCD. We also know that there's a genetic component to all of this. Our environment has a whole heck of a lot to do with it as well. So 100% agree with you that it is not anybody's fault, 
But I also really believe in the idea of like, once you know what's going on, and of course, if you have access to treatment, if you have access to these resources, I know that not everybody does, but mm. you can change that, right? So like, we are not um, kind of destined to always be this way. They've also done a lot of research to show that someone's brain before OCD treatment can look wildly different after OCD treatment. So the same brain, but before and after treatment, there's this concept of neuroplasticity in our brains. You can teach an old dog new tricks by doing these behavioral changes and doing exposures by you know resisting compulsions and messing with OCD's pattern. You can change your brain. You can literally through these behavioral changes, make neurological changes in the brain. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's so important for people to know that it's not their fault, but you do have things that you can do about it. Like you're not just stuck with this forever. And secondly, to your point, um, we can't be coming at this with a change agenda. We can't be coming at treatment with a, I just want to feel better agenda. I just want to feel less anxious. I just want to feel happy. We can't change what's going on in the inside. We can maybe influence what's going on in the inside with our behaviors and what we engage in and what we don't engage in, but we can't do this or do this exposure so that we feel better because maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't, right? It's about, you know, going and living a life that you still value, letting yourself feel the way that you feel, not having to have it be perfect or be any certain way. And continuing to engage in the valued life that you want to be living with or without these conditions kind of going on. Um, so yeah, anything else that you have to say? Any last words of encouragement or any last words of wisdom before we wrap up here? Um, final words of encouragement. Um, one thing that I would recommend is find your community, find your support. Um, I'm very grateful for the support system that I have being um, my family and my treatment team. Um, but community and support can look all sorts of different ways, right? It can be a family member, it can be a medical provider, it can be somebody in like a community forum. Um, you know, the IOCDF has um, a lot of opportunities for that as well as no CD um, support groups. And the reason I say that is just because um, treatment is challenging um, and it can weigh on you at times. It is so worth it. Um, let me make that <laughs> well known and heard. Um, but it's good to have a support system to lean on when those times are difficult so that they can encourage you to push through and to keep with it um, as it will get easier as you move forward. Absolutely. I love that so much. Um, I would love for you to just drop like any way that people can stay up to date with you. I know in the um, resources that you shared with me, there was a, a, I think a website, Smashing Stigmas. Can you talk a little bit more about that or just how people can find out more about you? Yeah, sure. So smashingstigmas.com. Um, that's my blog. And I'm pretty much running kind of two stories on there. Um, there's the storyline of how I got to where I am that I'm developing as I move forward. Um, and then there's the storyline of the here and now. Every once in a while, I'll drop um, an entry just talking about, you know, a, a day that I struggled and how I got through it um, or these new challenges such as uh, panic disorder and what that has looked like for me. Um, so you can find me there and you can also find me on Instagram and TikTok um, at Brooke Miller, M-H-A for mental health advocate. Awesome. I love that so much. Brooke, thank you so much for being here. Super vulnerable, lots of good things that no one has really come on to talk about before. So I know it's going to be really, really helpful for people. I'll make sure to include all of those 
links and everything in the show notes for you guys to catch up on. But in the meanwhile, guys, I hope this was helpful. Thanks again to Brooke. And in the meanwhile, until next time, keep doing all of those hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.